This is Have You Met. My guest today is a renowned journalist and author. For most of his career, he wrote for the New York Times. He's well known for being part of a small team to publish a 2017 article that changed the conversation on UFOs. He's written several books, both fiction and nonfiction. His most recent publication is a biography of the late great Dr. John Mack, titled The Believer, Alien Encounters, Hard Science, and the Passion of John Mack. John Mack was an eminent Harvard psychiatrist who developed an interest in the alien abduction phenomenon. He risked his career and reputation to try to find out as much as he could about it. Have you met Ralph Blumenthal? So, Ralph, obviously I want to get to John Mack and, and talking about your book, but you've had a fascinating career yourself. So if we could go back to, to how you got into journalism and how your career took shape and just any moments you want to touch on, that would be awesome if you could, if you could give me that. Um, well, I got into journalism at a great time when print was still king. And uh, I had been the editor of my college newspaper, City College of New York, and uh, went on to Columbia Journalism School, which was and still is the, sort of the premier journalism school. And um, uh, after that, I got a job at the New York Times as a copy boy, which is uh, the lowest of the low. Uh, it's, uh, you get coffee for people, you, you know, carry their stories to the editors, uh, do whatever they want. Um, but it was a great you know, window into the New York Times. It was wonderful to be there. There were giants uh, in the field then, as there are now, but uh, it was just a, a wonderful time to be there. And of course, it was the age of typewriters and uh, it was a previous you know, era, antediluvian um, in many ways, the dinosaur era. But um, I learned a tremendous amount from you know, watching the experts at work. And um, I made my way up the ladder from suburban correspondent. I was a foreign correspondent in Vietnam and Cambodia and uh, West Germany. Um, and then I came back and started covering law enforcement and uh, uh, politics and um, a lot of investigative reporting into political corruption. Um, I uh, did a lot of reporting on Nazi war criminals hiding in America, uh, broke the story of um, the fact that the CIA had provided uh, access uh, into America for a lot of uh, war criminals and Nazi scientists because we wanted to use their expertise. Very shameful story. Um, and um, uh, then I was a national correspondent in Texas where the John Mack story sort of comes in we can talk about later. And I uh, was a cultural reporter for a while covering uh, the opera and classical music and Broadway, which was a wonderful change from political corruption. Yeah. Uh, all good news. Um, and uh, then I left the Times after 45 years in 2009 uh, to freelance to work on my book on John Mack and, uh, you know, do other projects. And uh, also teach, I became a distinguished lecturer at Baruch College of the City University of New York, where I still am, working in the library archives, uh, in charge of certain historical collections on reformed government. But I still contribute to the Times and I follow the UFO story. Uh, um, and uh, so that takes us up to the present. Yeah, wow. <laughs> Quite a summary, yeah. <laughs> Amazing career you've had. I had fun, and as I tell my journalism students, it is a wonderful career uh, to be a journalist because you get to travel everywhere, meet all kinds of interesting people. It's never a dull moment. Of yeah. course, the downside is every day you start from zero, <laughs> yeah. um, and you have to fill those pages or you know the web. Um, so it's it's not easy, especially today. 
yeah. but it's still a wonderful career. Yeah, and it's your job to learn, I suppose. So yeah, you're always learning new things. But yeah. you've also been a writer as well. You make yourself an expert in everything. And yeah. uh, it is very challenging, especially today where you could be caught out on anything. Uh, you know, if you get anything wrong, there's a million people out there who will, will tell you that. Uh, yeah. So uh, it's... Even it's, if they're wrong. It's a, it's a wonderful life. Yeah. Amazing. And and you've also, like I just mentioned, written novels and you've you've written nonfiction as well. Uh, nonfiction. I wrote a book about the mafia and a big drug case, uh, The Pizza Connection, which actually um, a National Geographic uh, program is going to feature starting later this month. Oh, cool. uh, um, National Geographic is doing a, a, a whole um, season of uh, mafia stories. So I'll be on that. Yeah. And uh, so I wrote about cops. I wrote about the famous nightclub in New York, the Stork Club, uh, which is probably the most famous night spot um, where all the celebrities gathered um, um, after World War II, after Prohibition originally. So, um, yeah, I had a good run with books. Yeah. Uh, Miracle at Sing Sing is one I definitely want to get to as well in in my own time at some point. Yeah, well, you know, writing about law enforcement, I got to... um, interested in the uh, question of, you know, prison and penology and uh, the warden of Sing Sing at the time, Warden Laws, they were a great name for a warden. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, there are people who think that names determine, uh, you know, um, history. Um, you know, th- there's something to that. Anyway, he went into uh, uh, penology and became a great prison reformer. And uh, he, even though he had to preside over 300 executions in the electric chair of Sing Sing, he was a great opponent of capital punishment because he saw it didn't do any good. It didn't deter anybody. It certainly didn't help, didn't, you know, um, uh, bring back to life any of the people who were killed. And it didn't allow for the um, rehabilitation of people. And often they got the, the, the defendant wrong. He, he didn't do it. Uh, mm. so uh, they executed the wrong people anyway so that i was very proud of that book yeah yeah absolutely um so along that winding road of, of fascinating twists and turns at what point did ufos slash uaps first kind of raise their head and, and grab your interest right well um like a lot of people in my generation growing up uh you know right after the war world war ii for People who don't know that that's the term, the war. Um, <laughs> I got interested in science fiction. That was a big uh, thing at the time. Ray Bradbury, Isaac Asimov, all the great writers, masters of science fiction. So I, you know, gobbled that up like everybody else in my generation. Um, and then it kind of wore off. I moved on to other things. I started just, I got interested in journalism. So, um, I really didn't do anything in that line until I was the New York Times correspondent in Texas in uh, from starting in 2003. And um, in 2004, I picked up uh, a copy of a book, a used book that I knew nothing about. Uh, it was called Passport to the Cosmos by John Mack. It was his second book. And... Um, uh, and I thought that it's really an interesting idea that a, a Harvard psychiatrist, a very renowned in his field, he had written a Pulitzer Prize winning biography of T.E. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia, mm-hmm. and he was esteemed in his you know, profession in, at Harvard as a professor of psychiatry. 
I got interested in the whole idea of alien abduction and people who had these experiences or who, who, who talked about the experiences of encountering alien beings. So he'd written two books. I picked up the second one. As I said, I knew nothing about him, even though he was quite famous at the time already. Um, he, um, he'd won the Pulitzer for, for Lawrence. He had been interviewed on the Oprah Winfrey show. He'd been in the New York Times many times, which I skipped over completely, uh, given, given a lot of lectures. He'd been investigated by Harvard for his methods, uh, eventually cleared, basically. So in other words, he had all this history that I knew nothing about. So I decided, uh, based on this book, I was going to give him a call and see if I could interview him. Uh, very interesting character, the Harvard connection, et cetera, aliens. And the next thing I knew, I picked up the paper and he was dead. Um, he'd been run over in London. He'd been there for a conference on Lawrence. Uh, looked the wrong way, as you know, we Yanks do um, uh, in the UK. And he got mowed down by a guy who'd had too much to drink. So, of course, the first uh, rumor that spread instantly was that he'd been assassinated because he was too, too troublesome to Harvard. Uh, and I was able to basically debunk that conclusively, in my opinion, uh, with the police reports. Uh, it was a complete accident. But yeah. To that. Um, so anyway, so that got me started. And I got in touch with the family um, who were grieving at that point and didn't want to talk about, you know, his materials. But eventually I got access to all his archives, his journals, his um, his writings, his tapes of his own therapy sessions, uh, very intimate things, his emails, mm. girlfriends, wife, etc. And that got me started. And I spent the next 16 years um, researching the story of John Mack. And now the yeah. book has come out. Wow. 16 years just engrossed in this, this level of access. Yeah. You, you must feel like you know John Mack so well now, even though, I, did you ever meet him? I don't- I, I never did, uh, because as I said, he'd been you know run over when I was in, in uh, Texas for the New York Times. So I had never met him before then. Um, and it, then it was too late, but uh, it was engrossing. I, I was very privileged as a biographer to have access to all these materials that uh, you know writers always wish they could have. Um, and uh, so I, I, and I had the full cooperation of his family, even though they did not demand any preconditions. They didn't see the manuscript as I was writing about it. They didn't direct it in any way. It was not quote, authorized. Um, but I had full cooperation of his wife, Sally, who died shortly afterwards of cancer, and his friends and colleagues. Everybody was very forthcoming with me. Um, so uh, that made it easier, but it was it was a you know a huge task to go through all his his material because yeah. uh, he accumulated accumulated so much. Yeah, yeah, I have no doubt. I mean, from from reading the book, yeah, I can just I can just begin to imagine the extent of the stuff you must have gone through. Like it, this must be a tiny percentage of the kind of stuff you've sifted through and come well, through. Right. A lot of it, you know, I, I couldn't use in the book. It was just too much. Uh, I think I got the, the, the important parts. Uh, he lived an amazing life uh, as a yeah. scholar and a professor and uh, very wide ranging because after alien abduction, for, before alien abduction, he was on to many interesting things, which you can talk about. And after alien abduction, he was on to other interesting things. 
Yeah. So um, it, it really was a full life he led. Yeah. No, I'm I'm really interested by basically all of the things he was interested in at the moment. I've kind of had this, I guess, since we've all been locked away and things like that, I've had more time to, to think about things and look at things. And he was interested in just the most fascinating subjects that we have available, really, in, in a way, wasn't he? Like everything from nightmares and, and that kind of thing and just general psychiatry all the way through to, yeah, the, the abductions and, you know, life after death, yeah, survival of consciousness. In, uh, you know, reaching out and he was not constrained in his interests. I mean, he started off um, doing basically you know, social reform, bringing psychiatric services, mental health services to poor areas of Boston, Cambridge, and um, got involved in... Um, uh, you know, campaign against nuclear weapons to outlaw nuclear weapons. Uh, he got arrested at the Nevada test site with his family protesting nuclear weapons. And um, um, he got very interested in the Middle East because of his Lawrence book. So he went over there to uh, meet with uh, Palestinian colleagues and try to understand the roots of the you know, Arab-Israeli conflict very timely mm -hmm. today. Um, he met with Yasser Arafat. Um, so he, he was wide ranging. And then after, you know, when he got interested in alien abduction, which we'll talk about how that happened, uh, he continued on to other anomalous areas. He got very interested in crop circles. He went to England to investigate those in wheelchair. And um, he got interested eventually in life after death um, and the survival of consciousness, which was very much on his mind at the time when you know, he yeah. was run over. Um, so, yeah, there was a lot to his life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Very colorful character, like, indeed. And, yeah, the interest. I do want to circle back to life after death and survival of consciousness and, and that kind of stuff in a little bit. Because I know one of your colleagues at the New York Times has written a book yes. on that as well. That's, that's Surviving Death on Netflix. Yes. And yes. I, I watched that recently as well. And I found I was I was gripped by that a couple yeah. of months ago. It was just completely eye-opening you know um like I, I was always kind of or recently i've been fairly open-minded but honestly when when my girlfriend said should we watch this and showed me what the episodes were called and i was definitely skeptical but but it's something it's it's hard to well you can't watch it and just say rubbish it's too much there to just dismiss it out of hand uh, it is in many ways like the whole alien encounter field uh, that the more you know about it, uh, the more intriguing it becomes. And the people who are renowned as, you know, debunkers, so-called skeptics, aren't really skeptics because they don't have an open mind. They just say what you just said. Oh, it's rubbish. And um, these people are crazy and they don't know yeah. what they're talking about because the people are not mentally ill. Um, they are not looking for publicity. On the contrary, they're running away from attention. They're, they feel ashamed of what they have been, you know, part of. They don't understand it. Um, so um, uh, it is one of those areas that you really have to, to do the research to, under, you know, understand more of before you pronounce on it one way or the other. Yeah. And on the abductions, I mean, if, obviously we can go into in just a moment, like how how John got into that. I mean, I know it's to do with to do with Bud Hopkins and all that kind of thing, but you can jump into that whole story in a moment. But yeah, it's just one of those topics where even if like I'm I'm not necessarily the cleverest guy in the in any room or anything like that, but you know you you have to have a certain level of intelligence to understand. Okay, John Mack was very clever, 
And if he's thinking this is something that needs to be looked at closer and we can't just look at it black and white and say, okay, that's what's happening. You know, ben, he, he, uh, he was brilliant. That's true. But he was not arrogant about it. No. I mean, it was, I, let me amend that. There was a bit of arrogance about it because he knew he was brilliant. Um, and, um, but he was very patient in explaining it to different audiences. He was willing to go into the lion's den at Harvard and other places and take on uh, skeptical audiences uh, and try to win them over. So um, he, um, he was very willing to, to do the work and to you know, face ridicule and, and shame and uh, you know, derision. Um, so, um, so that's an interesting aspect of him. He was, he was pay, very patient in a way. Mm. Yeah. So, so go on then. Give me the, the brief little intro, kind of a brief summary of how John Mack, this, this highly respected, distinguished Harvard professor specializing in psychiatry and, and you know, doctor, how he all of a sudden had his eye, eyes opened or, or interest, you know, grabbed by abduction experiences, I suppose. Right. Yeah. They like the word experiencers because it's more neutral than abductees. Abductees kind of, kind of already assumes the experience. Um, well, as I, as I lay out my book, which by the way, is called The Believer, you know, Alien Encounters, Hard Science and the Passion of John Mack, um, I, I lay out the steps that led John Mack to uh, the whole field of alien abduction. And this is what happened. Um, as I said, he was doing all these other things, protesting nuclear weapons, involved in social causes, uh, Middle East peace efforts, which grew out of his book on Lawrence. Um, and then um, he went out to Esalen, which is that, you know, think tank on the Pacific where a lot of psychic experiments and um, uh, research was going on into LSD and um, so a lot of cutting edge psychiatry um, and interesting story about Esalen, which I touch on in my book. Anyway, he went out there and um, a uh, fellow psychiatrist from Czechoslovakia named Stan Groff, who's quite famous in his own way, uh, handed him a book about um, called Spiritual Emergency, about different psychic states of, of uh, anxiety and emergency. And one of the chapters was about alien encounters. And Mac read that, and he was very dubious. He thought it didn't make a lot of sense to him that you know humans could actually be encountering alien beings, but it planted the idea in his mind. And then he got very interested in something called holotropic breathing that uh, Stan Groff was researching at the time. It was a relaxation method, uh, like hypnosis in a way, but it was basically self-relaxation to music. And through that, uh, people could uh, enter altered states of consciousness, um, sometimes going back to a previous life, it seemed, remembering what life was like in the womb, uh, remembering being born, all through this relaxation technique. So John Mack tried that, and he was very taken with it, because it did take him back to his childhood, his pre-childhood, his, his mm. before he was born in the womb, struggling to be born. He had a vision of a past life in Russia, um, and he thought, wow, this opened his, his psyche, his boundaries, uh, to see that it, there was more to 
you know, existence in this three-dimensional world that we are all assuming is reality. Mm. Um, so, um, and at one of these uh, breathwork sessions and uh, conferences, he met a fellow psychiatrist uh, who told him about Bud Hopkins. And uh, Bud Hopkins was an artist um, in New York and Cape Cod who had had a sighting of a UFO and got very interested in UFOs and started interviewing people with abduction stories. And he wrote some of the first books about it, uh, including a book called Missing Time about you know, people who uh, uh, you know, lose consciousness and then only later recover a memory of what happened to them. They, they were abducted or they had an encounter with aliens. Anyway, it was a phenomenon really not recognized until that point, and Bud Hopkins wrote about it. And John Mack uh, got an introduction to Bud Hopkins, which he didn't want to take up at first because he thought it sounded too crazy. And he thought Bud Hopkins must be crazy, and the people who had all these so-called experiences had to be crazy. But as, as you know, life would have it, strange things, he found himself in New York, and he found himself calling Bud Hopkins, and I sort of tell the story in the book, it's more detailed, and went to see Bud Hopkins, and um, Bud Hopkins gave him a bunch of letters uh, from people who had read his book, Bud's book, and were reporting their own uh, encounter experiences, abduction experiences, and um, gave them to, to, to uh, John Mack to look at, he said, you're the psychiatrist, you know, you look at these letters and decide what, you know, what's going on with these people. So John Mack did that. He took the letters and he had other things to do. So he didn't immediately go through them, but shortly afterwards he did. And he was astounded that there could be anything like this, um, mm. that the people who he quickly uh, discovered were ordinary people, not mentally ill. They were not following any mass delusion or agenda. And, you know, we can explore that later in a little more detail why he thought they were normal. Um, but anyway, they all had basically a similar story. How they were, you know, saw a UFO, they saw these beings, they were beamed into a craft or a ship, all kinds of uh, tests or experiments, including reproductive procedures, taking eggs from women and sperm from men, to apparently to create a hybrid race, and then they would be reabducted later to see their hybrid children. And this is a story, uh, not all consistent, 100%, but the, the, the basic story that people were telling. So that's what got him started. And he, mm -hmm. he began to, he collected his own group of these experiencers, as he called them, and explored their stories. And he ended up writing the first book called Abduction, and then the book that I picked up in Texas, Passport to the Cosmos, where he explored these experiences from the standpoint of a psychiatrist in great detail. And this was his advantage, of course, because yeah. he was a trained psychiatrist. And um, other people like Bud Hopkins, as enthusiastic as they were, could not bring that same level of, of expertise and, and knowledge, uh, scholarship, uh, and professional you know, expertise to, to the field, and he could. So that's, you know, that got him into the, the field. He started studying it and uh, uh, he quickly became convinced he was onto something. Yeah. It's, it's an amazing story. Before, I mean, obviously, eventually he had the run in with Harvard and, and they 
put him on in essence on trial basically um before that do you have much kind of idea from reading through all of his stuff how much resistance he faced like in the early days or did he keep it all very private from, from uh, well, the outside world surprisingly uh, ben he didn't keep it private uh, almost as soon as he learned about it from bud hopkins he started thinking about um talking about what he learned uh and in the book, I suggest it might have been a little too soon. Um, he didn't take enough time to really study the phenomenon before he uh, started talking about it. But that was his style. He was very impetuous, mm. very passionate, and he wanted to tell the world what he had found. Um, and he was really one of the few other psychiatrists had encountered this in terms of patients who told them stories. But by and large, they wrote it off as a delusion. They didn't want to deal with it. They said, you, you must be dreaming, must be a nightmare, whatever. But as soon as he heard about it and looked into it, he, had, he decided it was something real about it. Mm. Um, and we can talk about what dimension this was playing out in, but that it, 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 it sounded real to him because the, 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 the way the people talked about it afterwards, they were very emotionally overwrought when they discussed their experience. So, um, um, so he began talking about it and he talked about it to a faculty club at Harvard um, very quickly. Uh, I mean, within a year, let's say. Uh, yeah. And then he convened a grand rounds, which is a lecture at Harvard um, in December, 91. So two, less than two years after he first heard about it from Bud Hopkins. Um, and um, uh, where he laid it out and he actually brought an experiencer to talk to the audience. Uh, well, he, he brought an experiencer to talk to the audience and he brought a tape of a, of a session he had done with an experiencer of a woman who remembered having her pregnancy removed, uh, you know, on a, on a spaceship by aliens um, in this hybrid breeding program, supposedly. And she was crying and weeping and it was a harrowing tape to listen to so um so he did start talking about it right away and he wasn't intimidated and um not quite a number of our colleagues thought he was out of his mind um and uh he encountered quite a bit of resistance he was written off as uh you know he, he'd gone over the over the hill over the wall um and um, but there were others, uh, especially people who had experienced this, who knew what he, you know, they recognized what he was talking about. They recognized themselves and they came to his defense and, um, and, and, and other colleagues defended his methods and said he was just following, uh, you know, evidence, anecdotal evidence. There was no real proof, but he was still, um, uh, you know, using uh, time tested uh, scientific methods of interviewing people and trying to understand what had happened to them and applying his skills to analyze it. And if you, yeah. his, his first book, particularly, you see the, um, uh, the rigor that he took to test their stories and to understand what was going on and, and why he rejected all the other explanations. So anyway, to answer your question, a long roundabout way, um, he had quite a bit of opposition. He had some support and he was undeterred. He just started talking about it. And that, that certainly picked up as the years went on. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's amazing. You're a pioneer, just like you say, following from as far as he can see the best available. It's a weird word to use it, but evidence. Like like you say, it's anecdotal, it's witness, but it's still, it's an evidence of sorts, isn't it? So most people listening, or some people listening at least, are going to be thinking, yeah, somebody says they, they went up to the spaceship and, and this X, Y, and Z happened to them. That's a weird dream, or it's a, you know, it's a nightmare, or it's to do with sleep paralysis or hallucination. There are, people can come up with anything to, to say, something easier to accept, I suppose. Um but how did, yeah, how did John kind of differentiate the fact that these people that he was seeing and, and that he was dealing with were, like you said earlier, in essence, normal, although there is no normal for human, is there? But as close as can be. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll tell a little story that I start my book with. Uh, there was a um, renowned uh, English scientist of the 1870s named uh, Sir uh, William Crookes, C-R-O-L-K-E-S, um, who was quite a, a eminent scientist in his own way then. And he, at that time, there was a great interest in seances and paranormal, you know, activities. And he was sent by his scientific society to uh, attend uh, one of these seances and, uh, and, and debunk it. So he went and he was amazed to see these things happening. Uh, musical instruments playing themselves in a locked cabinet and people levitating and protoplasm emerging at a seance. And um, instead of debunking it, he came back and he, he said something very famous, which I use as a, sort of an epigraph in my book. Uh, I never said it was possible. I only said it was true. So if you, if, you, if, you, if you forget for a moment whether a certain thing is possible or not, and everybody agrees that these things are not possible in our reality. Oh, well, um, you. They make no sense. We don't see it happening in the street. It, it goes against every idea we have about, you know, how things work in reality. Anyway, so it, it, John and everybody else agreed these things were not possible. And yet the stories that the experiences were telling him and the and other, quote, evidence, as you say, that he uh, collected um, showed otherwise, that something was happening that, ran counter to what everybody believed was possible. So first of all, um, the stories were basically consistent that people from all different walks of life, um, uh, men and women, blue collar people, professionals, uh, you know, police officers, doctors, psychiatrists, business people, uh, didn't matter. Um, we're basically telling the same stories of watching a, seeing a UFO and then feeling, feeling the presence of these alien beings. And children, uh, who he talked to too, John Mack, uh, as young as two years old, would tell these stories. You know, little man, take me up into the sky. I fly in the sky. And, you know, John Mack realized that these children were not quoting for books they had read. And they barely, they couldn't read. Uh, they, they, they didn't go to the movies. So they weren't making it up based on, you know, some cultural, you know, background they had. Anyway, so the, the stories are basically consistent. And yet there were so many details that were completely uh, strange and different that the people couldn't be reciting some story that they had all heard or read about. Um, the stories were so uh, insane, really, weird, uh, that um, you'd say they, they couldn't be made up. Uh, no one could even think of these things. 
So that was one thing he noticed. Um, secondly, um, he noticed that these things uh, didn't happen only at night when people were supposedly sleeping or having nightmares. Uh, they happened in some cases during the day. Uh, people walking around, a woman on a snowmobile in one case was driving a snowmobile, people driving their cars. Um, and, um, um, and when they occurred at night, um, they weren't necessarily nightmares because the people themselves differentiated between what was a nightmare and what was really happening to them, or what they felt was really happening to them. And among other things, John Mack was an expert in nightmares because he'd written a book on nightmares and he had done a scholarly study of nightmares. So people, you know, skeptics couldn't say, oh, you don't understand, John. These are nightmares. He knew what nightmares were. And people felt, as I said, the difference between waking up out of a nightmare or being fully awake and seeing their doors sliding open and the being, you know, short, gray you know, robotic being walking in. Um, so, uh, so that was another thing. Um, there was um, e some, some ev quote evidence uh, to the extent of scars and scoop marks afterwards that people could not remember ever getting before uh, from any operation, but they saw them, they saw these marks on their bodies afterwards that seemed relatable to some experiments or tests that they had been subjected to on the, on the craft. Um, sometimes the grass was pressed down or foliage was disturbed outside where they remembered a UFO had landed. And in some cases, there were even corroborative witnesses, uh, which is perhaps the most striking aspect of this. There was a case um, he wrote about of two girls who had a sleepover and um, uh, outside they remembered seeing a UFO. This, later they described this. Anyway, they had their sleepover. The mother of one of the girls where, they, where the sleepover was happening came down to check on them during the night and found them missing. So she completely panicked, called the police. They searched everywhere and they didn't find them. And a few hours later, the girls turned up in their beds. And later uh, they recounted, uh, they recaptured in maybe a hypnotic regression, I believe, um, this missing time where they said they saw the UFO landing outside and they were taken away um, in, the, in the spaceship for a few hours and then returned. So in this case, there was the corroborative evidence of the mother who said, I went down to look at, for the girls and they were gone. So this was an actual case of physical absence, which is not always the case because there are also examples of people uh, who feel themselves present. So in other cases, it seems to be a psychic phenomenon where the spirit or the soul or the uh, non-corporeal part of the body, you know, uh, is abducted or taken away. And very complicated stuff. Anyway, so you ask, you know, what were the things that convinced John Mack that these stories are real? And then, as I said, the, the affect, which is a psychiatric term for the... Um, the way people present these stories was very convincing to him. They did, they were not making it up, you know, like uh, uh, thinking of things to say, they were completely caught up in the moment and they were weeping and crying and cursing and yelling. And they seemed to be undergoing that experience of having a pregnancy removed or encountering these beings terrified. So 
again, he said, this does not sound like something people would be making up as they go along. And he had his psychiatric, you know, training to back him up. He, he had studied all this stuff. Yeah. So that's it's, yeah, it's, it's something <laughs> it's, it's, to why John Mack believed he was onto something. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because he had no reason to think he wasn't other than the prevailing right. worldview, I guess. Listen, uh, he said to the so-called skeptics, if you have an explanation that accounts for all these things I just laid out, why children as young as two and why the stories are consistent and the individual details and the damaged foliage outside and the witness corroboration, if you can give me a theory that ticks off all these boxes, I'll buy it. But he kept saying that there was nothing to, to indicate uh, that anything had happened other than what the people said had happened, um, yeah. even though it seems impossible. Yeah, I feel like these days, well, not even just these days, it's clearly been happening for a long time, but we struggle to take people at their word when it's something that doesn't sound just conventional. You know, well, you know we're is, all is... brought up uh, to uh, understand this physical world. And, you know, it mm. looks like reality to us. Um, and we take it as as the only reality there is. And then we uh, find out about things like, you know, love and God and, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, near-death experiences that seem to challenge our idea of what reality is. Um, so uh, this has been a constant, uh, you know, uh, motif in, uh, in culture, civilization throughout all of history, that people uh, yeah. live in one in, the, in daily reality, and yet they are aware of things that don't fit that reality. Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. So, in terms of some of his cases, um, I, I know this one wasn't an abduction. One of the most compelling for me was what happened at Ariel School. Yeah, in in Rua. Um, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about that one and and John's involvement, but also if there's one that you think is maybe the most compelling or that John thought was his kind of most compelling. Well, let me so talk about two. I mean, the, the first one, which which predated John Mack, was um, Betty and Barney Hill. Yeah, uh, this is the most famous abduction case in in history. That happened. It happened in 1961 in the White Mountains of New Hampshire, but it didn't come out until more than two years later because Betty and Barney Hill kept it secret. They were a couple. They were driving home, and they saw what looked like a, a plane at first, and then a spaceship, and then the car stopped, and um, they saw these uh, the, the, the craft landed, and these beings abducted them, captured them and took them into the ship for experiments and Betty's dress was all torn. And, um, some of this they remembered consciously, which is another aspect of this that John Mack found interesting that it's not all uh, recoverable through hypnosis. Hypnosis being controversial itself because we don't understand completely, you know, how it works and what ideas can be implanted by a hypnotist. But so let's say some of these memories at least, are conscious memories, um, which is another uh, reason John Mack found them so compelling. So it was not all, you know, recovered yeah. during hypnosis anyway. But in this case, the Betty and Bonnie Hill remembered some things, and then they didn't remember other things, and they ended up at home, and they didn't quite know how they got there. And later, they had a lot of troubling dreams and went to a psychiatrist, a very eminent psychiatrist, not John Mack who was not involved 
long before he got involved, this psychiatrist named Ben Simon, who was quite distinguished in his own right, um, he uh, put them through hypnotic regressions and conscious interviews. And he too concluded that something had happened to them that he could not explain. Um, because in the regressions, they remembered, you know, interactions with the beings. And I tell, I retell the story in my book. There's a book about yeah. the abduction itself. Anyway, so that's one case that um, is the gold standard, let's say, of abduction cases, which to this day have not been explained. Mm. Um, and then, as you mentioned, the Ariel School, very interesting. While John was under investigation at Harvard, uh, he heard about a uh, apparent landing of a UFO at a school outside Harare, Zimbabwe, in Southern Africa, uh, where 60 children were at recess in the schoolyard, and they saw uh, bright lights, balls of light, and a craft landing, and two beings, two small beings come out, and they looked at the kids, and the kids looked at them, and the children described them later as very short, in some kind of uniform, uh, kid-sized beings, with mesmerizing black eyes that seem to send telepathic messages, which is another feature of, of these beings, according to other accounts. And um, uh, 60 children at least saw this and went you know, running to the adults who were uh, uh, quite surprisingly not present at the time. They were all doing other things. It was recess. Um, the children later drew pictures of this. Anyway, John Mack rushed to uh, the school, the Ariel School, interviewed the children, it's on tape, a lot of the interviews, and asked them just to describe their experiences. And these kids, again, who had not been readers of UFO literature and they had not been steeped in movies, they were you know, 10, 11, 12 years old, mixed race children, white, black, you know, uh, all, all variations, very diverse group of, of well-spoken children told what they had seen and what I just said. They saw these beings and they heard their messages in their heads, uh, take better care of the planet. And um, the children got the feeling that there was something sad about these beings. Um, and they felt almost a lot, the children felt some kind of love for these creatures in some way, which we've seen in other cases. Anyway, and John Mack captured all this on, on tape and in interviews and video. Uh, there's a film going to come out at some point on this. Uh, it's been mentioned in other articles and books. I give a pretty full account in my book. Um, so uh, John Mack was very good with children, particularly, because he'd written about childhood psychology. He'd spent a lot of time with children. He'd, spent, he'd even spent time sort of investigating the development of his three boys, his own three boys. <laughs> he really brought his knowledge home. He studied their interactions and their rivalries. So, um, again, uh, he was writing about something he knew well, and you could see him in the videos literally getting down on the floor with the kids to meet them at eye level and talk to them. And he was not leading them in any way, you know, tell me about the time you saw the alien. Uh, he would say open-ended questions like, well, what did you see and what did you feel and what did this being say to you? Or what, did, what message did you feel you were getting? Um, so uh, he was very non-judgmental. You could get that sense from the tape. Um, and um, 
it's very convincing. And again, mm-hmm. what made this case, first of all, it happened in, in modern times. It happened in 1995 or six, I believe, um, with all the modern technology of videotape and audio tape and all that. Um, and um, it's, a, it's there for anyone to look at. You can look at the, a lot of them are online. Uh, the John Mack Institute, you know, put them up. Uh, as I yeah. said, there's a film coming out. Uh, uh, the aerial phenomenon by one of the experiences John Mack worked with, Randy Nickerson. Um, so that is another famous. So we talked about two two famous cases now: the Betty and Barney Hill case, where there's no video or, or you know audio. There's only um, uh, re- records of their you know testimony, both conscious and uh, under hypnosis. And now the aerial school case. Uh, there are no videos of aliens that I know of landing. Uh, it, the phenomenon is not, has not been captured to that extent, unlike UFOs, by the way, yeah. of which there are uh, pictures, uh, good pictures. Um, so uh, that's, that's an area that remains to be explored. Yeah, it is, it is a really compelling one, that aerial school. I guess, I guess the average person who's skeptical and, and wants to look at that story and say, nah, I think they're probably going to say mass hallucination or mass hysteria, right? I'm assuming John looked into all that kind of thing and, and gave his best conclusion based on what he knew. Well, um, yes, he did, actually. And the way the children describe this, uh, if you look at the, the interviews or so, uh, they're very sober and they're very analytical, the children, and very matter of fact. And you certainly don't get the impression that this is a, a uh, case of mass hysteria where children are all repeating the same story. Um, right. the, the children are very thoughtful and um, uh, they're, just, they're just repeating what they saw and what they heard. Um, um, you know, what they think they saw and what they think they heard, if you want to be very literal about it. But um, uh, I think you come away from that uh, if you look at the, the, the videos or so saying, well, it's very convincing. It's very hard to debunk. Uh, yeah. Anything, of course, is possible. The children could be, you know, ro- ro- they're not really children. They're robots, you know, instructed to say, you can come up with any theory you want, but it's got to fit you know, the, the facts. And the fact is that this was a normal school and, um, and, and this strange thing happened, which nobody can, can really explain. Uh, so um, it's, it's quite compelling. Yeah, definitely. Were there any other cases that you think John kind of hung his hat on? Wow. Was like well, there was one case in a way that, was, that I spent some time talking about in my book that, it, you know, in this field, you think you've heard one case that is completely mind-blowing and then you hear about another case and that's even more mind-blowing and that you know is so each case sort of resets the standard and um, uh, Bud Hopkins at a conference by the way John Mack attended uh, a number of um, uh, very learned scientific congresses that, that dealt with this subject, one of which was at MIT in 1992. Uh, and, and that drew, and that's how I begin my book, um, that conference um, that MIT did not sponsor, it just provided a venue, but it drew atomic scientists and psychiatrists and um, 
theologians and religious scholars and, um, you know, a broad section of, of experts all grappling with this mystery of what, what was going on with these people. So, um, and uh, at this conference, uh, Bud Hopkins also attended, and he made reference to a case he was investigating uh, called the, the Brooklyn Bridge abduction uh, of a woman who came to him and claimed uh, that she had been taken by a spaceship with aliens from her 12-story window overlooking the Brooklyn Bridge in New York. And that there were witnesses to the case, cars stopped outside on the bridge, and this um, UFO took her in and flew away and then plunged into the East River. That was the story from, from witnesses. And um, which is interesting because now when we get around to talking about, uh, you know, the UAP accounts and the investigation, some of them mention these um, craft uh, objects operating in the water. Yeah, um, which is interesting. They said medium, the medium, it seems to be a trans medium phenomenon, whatever it is. So it operates in the sky and the water. Anyway, this account said that the, 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 the ship that took in this woman and three aliens from her window went into the river, the East River. Um, and um, John Mack was really taken with this case that Bernard Hopkins was investigating, later wrote a book about the problem is that the, the story kind of ends in a dead end because the two people who came forward originally to, to tell Bud, Bud Hopkins about it uh, could never be found. Uh, they, Bud Hopkins made contact with them, uh, received messages from them, received audio messages, received written messages, but never found them physically to corroborate their story. Um, so it ended in, in a real mystery, um, mm. tantalizing, tantalizing, because yeah. so much that was, you know, strange about that case. And yet um, Bud Hopkins thought this would be the, the case that would make his reputation. And that would be, you know, the most famous abduction case of, of all history. And of course, in the end, um, uh, you couldn't, couldn't settle it like so many of the other cases. You can't settle these things. There's always some missing piece. And um, the proof that, you know, skeptics keep asking for, show me an ashtray from a UFO. You know, show me a video of an abduction. Uh, it, do it doesn't happen. I mean, people set up cameras in their bedrooms to try to capture it. It doesn't happen. Um, you know, the whole story of a Skinwalker Ranch where all these strange things were going on in Utah. Uh, the most important things that were observed by, by witnesses there did not make it to, to videotape. To yeah. So, um, you know, you could say, well, it shows it's not, it didn't happen. But it, I think it's more complicated than that. Yeah, I think so. Um, and I think a lot of other people thought the same when like based on John's research and one person that took an interest that I'm very interested in asking you about is the fact that Dalai Lama, when he reached out to, to John or, or through people to John and asked him to come and basically give him a briefing, right? Uh, a few days talking about the subject and his findings. Um, I'm, I'm very proud of having in my book, The Believer, yeah. <laughs> that... Um, 
and because the story has never been told before. Uh, Dalai Lama being an exile from China, living in India, uh, is, is very sensitive to uh, political pressure, let's say, from the Chinese. He's, he's, he's a uh, persona non grata in China, for, for sure. And, um, and, and yet he has a huge following, as we know, uh, and he's taken as a, you know, a renowned spiritual leader. But uh, this was not a story that he necessarily promoted. So what happened is a filmmaker who had done some work with um, Tibetan Buddhists got an invitation to recruit a group of um, uh, research, American researcher, researchers um, studying uh, spiritual matters like alien abduction and bring them to the Dalai Lama for a week of, of discussions. And he picked John Mack among them. So... Um, in 1992, Mac went off and met with the Dalai Lama and these other people, and they all told stories about what they were researching, including alien abduction. And the Dalai Lama, by the transcripts I was able to get, which was supposedly secret, but John Mack kept a copy, showed that it was no big revelation to the Dalai Lama. Uh, he was very familiar with spiritual things happening and uh, unexplainable things in another dimension. Um, and he was intrigued by the research that, that John Mack and others had done in alien abduction, but he wasn't really surprised. But just his reaction, he spoke pretty good English, so it's all in English. Um, and I tell the story in my book. Yeah. I thought it was just amazing that the fact that he invited him along. I mean, most people that don't really investigate this kind of, you know, this topic and look into it, look past the the veil, as it were. I don't think many people would assume that this kind of thing would happen, that somebody like the Dalai Lama would, would invite people researching alien abductions yeah, really, to come and talk about. And, uh, uh, the fact that he, I mean, in, in retrospect, you'd say, well, sure, he'd be interested. I mean, he's a spiritual man and he's yeah. into different things, but... Uh, it, you know, there, it is a controversial topic, uh, alien abduction, and uh, there's a ridicule factor that anybody who gets yeah. into it has to deal with that in some way or other. And I think that's why they kept it kind of quiet. Uh, yeah. But I got the, the transcripts. Yeah, it was an incredible find. Um, so on that, you mentioned that, yeah, the Dalai Lama is obviously very spiritual and, and has like that kind of way of looking at it. Let's have a like go down that road in terms of John John Max changing. I won't say that he had like a hard view on it and and it changed to another hard view, but it was constantly evolving and you know slightly changing. I suppose his way of looking at this phenomenon or this this thing that was happening, and and I guess at some points he did think maybe it was more on a potentially on a spiritual plane or something like that, and maybe not necessarily entirely in our physical yeah. reality. Yeah. Um. Well. When he heard about it from Bud Hopkins, Bud Hopkins was very attached to the idea that this was a physical phenomenon happening in reality. And David Jacobs, a professor at Temple, who did some very good work in hypnotic regression of, of his own experiences, who was also a big factor in this field, he also felt, uh, along with Bud, that this was something pretty much happening in reality and that these aliens were uh, bent on producing a you know, hybrid race, and it, it was pretty evil stuff, actually, uh, very mm -hmm. traumatic and, um, and real, really essentially real. And John started questioning this uh, increasingly and said, um, it, it, 
uh, it's got to be happening in some other dimension that penetrates our dimension in a real way for the people experiencing it. But um, it's not necessarily happening in our everyday reality. And of course, that uh, caused some strains with the experiencers he was dealing with because they thought he was running out on them, uh, like, you know, weaseling out uh, of the reality because it was very real to them. And they kept saying, this is real. This really happened. Um, so he couldn't quite decide in what reality this was happening. But what, what he brought to it, which is interesting, and um, this is what separated him from Bud Hopkins later, and they had a kind of a falling out over it, but they reconciled later, um, was that uh, Mac was hearing from his experiencers that they felt transformed by the experience in some way, that they felt uh, a kind of a love for the beings, that they felt the the uh, divine um, spark of the cosmos, and they felt uh, um, uh, they got a message to take better care of the planet uh, because the planet was being destroyed by nuclear waste and uh, by nuclear you know, uh, weapons and um, by pollution, and that humans had to take better care of the planet, that these were the messages, the telepathic messages that experiencers felt that they were getting. So there was a transformative element to these experiences. And it was not just traumatic, it was traumatic, but not only traumatic, that they felt you know, these terrifying experiments performed on them and procedures and all that, the pregnancies removed uh, as they explained it. And, uh, but at the same time, it was not totally negative. They, they felt that they were being uh, missionaries into a new, you know, future, uh, et cetera. And uh, that differ differentiated Mac from uh, Hopkins and Jacobs. Um, and it caused him other problems because people thought he was projecting uh, onto the experiences that he wanted the, 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 he wanted the experience to be transformative. And so it was, you know, uh, that he was imposing his own view on, on this whole uh, strange uh, business. Um, but, um, but in the end, uh, he, he thought it was not totally physical, um, that it was in some other reality, and he moved on to other things. He started seeing abduction as related to other, uh, you know, paranormal or anomalous uh, uh, areas such as, you know, crop circles, which he investigated in, in England, um, um, other mysterious phenomena like, you know, uh, Bigfoot, um, and eventually near-death experiences. He got very interested in that. Uh, yeah. And plus, along the way, he got interested in a lot of stuff. He, he heard about this mineral, uh, Moldavite. Uh, which has yeah. supposedly has mysterious properties. It's identified with the grail in, in, in literature that it, uh, it has, a, according to the stories, this mineral, which comes from the, you know, the Moldau region of uh, Bohemia and Czechoslovakia, Germany, that um, it, it, this stone can move. It turns up in unexpected places. So he was very interested in that story explore that he got a piece of the, those little stones for himself to investigate. I, I did too, by the way, I, yeah. I ordered one and uh, uh, so far it has stayed put. <laughs> uh, After reading your book, I want to get one as well. I mean, yeah. You're going to have a bump in Moldavite sales. Yeah. Um, 
So he got interested in these other things, uh, Mac. And as I said, especially towards the end of his life, um, survival of consciousness. And it looked as if he was ready for the next stage in his existence, which is, you know, working from the other side, as he told people. Um, so, um, you know, it wasn't suicide to step in front of that uh, rushing car in London. But um, in some ways, he was uh, open to a, you know, a new experience, you could say. So that, like, like Lawrence, by the way, who you know, was killed in a motorcycle accident. Um, and uh, he, he also, as John Mack wrote, uh, was, seemed to be ready uh, for, for death in a way because mm -hmm. he had done so much in life that he couldn't duplicate Lawrence. Yeah. Uh, could never recapture that important part of his life. So anyway, he was interested in a lot of, John was interested in a lot of stuff at the end of his life that goes way beyond alien abduction. Yeah, definitely. And a lot of other really interesting subjects that need to have more light sh shone on them, I think. Um, just a quick question. Do you know if he ever looked into like lucid dreaming and that kind of thing? Did he ever go down that road? He looked into a lot of aspects of, of dreaming and its connection to these uh, episodes because he was, always, he was constantly being told that he didn't understand um, that these people were going through sleep paralysis, for example. And uh, now there are aspects of sleep paralysis that coincide with the alien abduction experience um, because a writer named David Huffert wrote a whole book on uh, uh, the terror that comes in the night about the old, old hag syndrome. Uh, people, including Huffert himself, experienced the sensation that uh, malignant, awful, evil beings would climb into their beds at night and try to strangle them. And it was a visceral thing. I mean, you could smell the evil of these beings. And, and as I say, Hufford, who was a noted scientist, social scientist himself, experienced this. So there, there were connections between alien abduction and things like, you know, old hag syndrome, which seemed to occur during a moment at night when they... Um, the victim was in a, in a sleep-like state, okay? And, and, and sleep paralysis mimics some of the uh, accounts of people suffering alien abduction. They're paralyzed, they can't move, their partners beside them in bed are switched off and can't speak, can't react, can't be roused. So, um, so these were the experiences that, that there was this overlap uh, between... Um, you know, the old hag syndrome, let's say, and alien experiences, but they didn't only happen, but the alien experience didn't only happen at night. They happened in the daytime. Uh, people mm -hmm. driving their cars, walking around. So uh, people who explain it all as sleep paralysis or a nighttime phenomenon uh, or a nightmare uh, could not explain these other occurrences. Uh, if it's a night, you don't have nightmares when you're driving your car, you know, down the road, you're suddenly having a nightmare. Um, so that didn't explain it. So, uh, and Mac, who had studied nightmares, knew that. So uh, th there was some overlap. It is interesting. The old hag syndrome did seem to mimic some of the uh, abduction accounts, but not all of them. Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing. It doesn't answer all the questions. 
Yeah, the, the reason I asked about lucid dreaming, I had somebody on this podcast a few weeks ago and he we, we went deep into that and he's an expert lucid dreamer and, and on lucid dreaming. And he believes there's a lot of connection with, you know, consciousness and, and survival of consciousness and past lives and all these different things around lucid dreams. So I just wondered whether it had been something that, you know, John had looked at as well. Yeah, um, he would. He would because he looked at all the possibilities. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. That was immediately what I thought when when I put these two together in my head. Um, but if we can just uh, before we wrap up on on John and get back to talking a bit more about the, the kind of the current state of UFOs and things before I leave you. Um, I was just wondering on John, if we could go into the survival of survival of consciousness and life after death a little bit more. And if you could just talk briefly about his yeah. his looking into that and his findings after looking so into that. He, uh, towards the end of his life, uh, John moved on from uh, alien abduction only to other things. His, uh, uh, his scope of interest widened. He got very interested in crop circles and he went to England as I said to investigate them and he actually lay down in one of them and felt tremendous energy and um, uh, one of his um, aides who went with him uh, was very skeptical and thought that she didn't feel it and she thought that it was a sign of machinery around and that maybe someone had made these crop circles but um, it seems to that while some of the crop circles are man-made as hoaxes or whatever others are not so um, uh, anyway, that, that he, he, he wrote about that. He was very taken with that. And then he got very interested in the case of a young woman um, who uh, was very brilliant, um, who had some paranormal gifts of her own ability to, to see things, did remote viewing, etc. who was studying, her name was Elizabeth Tard, um, who was studying um, uh, the effects of distant prayer on uh, AIDS patients. And she found that uh, AIDS patients who were prayed for did better than those who were not prayed for. It was an interesting finding and she got some heavy funding for that. And it was quite striking. And then um, uh, unfortunately she developed the same kind of brain cancer that uh, some of the people she was studying uh, had and she died from it. And, and John Mack was very close to her and her uh, husband, uh, she married when she took ill, and, um, and became aware that uh, after she died, uh, people were, her husband and other people were receiving messages from her even after she died. And he was planning a book on this. Um, and uh, very interesting uh, accounts. And as I end my book with, with this, uh, these episodes uh, where John Mack, after he died, uh, he was seen or, or his spirit uh, was seen by people and friends of his who recounted um, connections to him and things he said. Um, and, you know, very interesting. I put it at the end of the book because I did not want it to interfere with the uh, credibility of the book. These are yeah. completely un verified, you know, their anecdotal accounts, um, but they come from people who knew John Mack well, and, uh, you know, they, they said, this is what happened. I saw that, you know, he came back to me like this and that, and um, one uh, episode I talk about in the book, a woman he went to the crop circles with um, had a dream where John Mack came, after he died, he came out of a crowd and walked up there and said, uh, let's go to a restaurant. She said, you know, you're dead. And he said, of course. And they went to a restaurant and they sat on a banquette 
and uh, he was wearing a short sleeve shirt and she was wearing a sleeveless blouse and their arms touched and she felt tremendous heat coming off his arms. And she said, John, you're burning me. And he said, that's so you'll know I'm real. That's the dream she had. Um, and uh, other people had similar dreams. So anyway, uh, this was his latest um, uh, obsession, you could say, passion, as I say in the book, uh, yeah. survival of consciousness. And uh, it's interesting, like everything else he did. Yeah. T a timely passion as well, like you say, because he died not long after kind of really getting into that one, didn't he, I suppose? Yeah, and lots of weird little things. I mean, I definitely wouldn't put it past John Mack to have come back and communicated with some of the people he knew yeah. from what I know of him after your book. I <laughs> writing the book that I was getting downloads of information offered during the night. Could be my brain mm -hmm. working overtime, uh, just wrestling with problems, or it could be some, you know, <laughs> information from the cosmos yeah put this and put that in i don't know but, uh, you know i'm not saying definitely all i'm saying is i got a lot of good ideas at night uh, lying there and suddenly things would pop into my mind like many scientific um advances occur with just an idea popping into the mind of the scientist this is a well-known phenomenon it's not you know methodical uh, in every case where a scientist follows a list, you know a, a list of clues and then suddenly solves the mystery at the end of the the path um, suddenly some solution will appear and where that comes from um, is rather intriguing. Yeah, definitely. I think that's one of the reasons I find John Mack so fascinating is for the man that knew so much, he was also so much more aware than most of us are how much we don't know. If you see what I'm trying to say there, he was um, he was very yeah aware of our limitations, I guess, of, of what we can understand at the moment. Um, Absolutely. But he, but he understood at the same time that that's not the, the limitations and barriers we see are not necessarily where the real limitations and barriers are. Um, yeah, absolutely amazing character. And thank you for writing such a great biography about him that allowed me to to kind of get to know him a little bit. Before we jump in and talk a bit more about, yeah, UFOs and stuff now um, and your stuff with the Times, is there anything else you want to say just about John no, to, to kind of wrap it up? Very charismatic, charismatic character, tall, you know, uh, imposing cobalt eyes. He was magnetic to men and women. I mean, he yeah. attracted uh, both in terms of uh, uh, supporters and followers. Uh, he was attracted to other women, which he often laid to his uh, loss of his mother in, in childhood. His mother died of um, uh, appendicitis when he was eight and a half months old. So he was searching, searching his whole life for a missing uh, you know, female figure, which led him to some romantic adventures during his marriage. Um, but he was not a sneaky kind of guy. He just said, I feel attracted to other women. And he had uh, some women who he worked with who helped him in his research. Um, but he was, he was in many ways, as I say at the end of the book, I regard him as a heroic figure because he um, was willing to explore controversial areas um, risk his career. Uh, he was not intimidated. He could have walked away and said, this is not going to help me in my, you know, uh, uh, professional life. Uh, this is too yeah. kooky. Uh, but it, he said, why wouldn't everybody be uh, consumed by this? You know, this is a real mystery. And it is. It is a mystery. Uh, and he didn't solve it. I didn't solve it in the book. And uh, it may never be solved, but it's out there. Yeah. 
No, it's amazing. And it's a mystery that's linked to UFOs. Not it's it's kind of on the same spectrum, but it's at the same time they're different, partly because it's so much of a leap for your average person to go from okay, so UFOs and, and things are real, okay, but to being you Uf- abductions is a whole other kettle of fish. Absolutely. But um but yeah, it's uh it's a massive leap, but it's still in the same sort of topic. So let's go more onto that. Okay. And I, I guess if you want to nip back to maybe your first published UFO related article, because I think you did so you definitely did some before the, the big one that everybody talks about. And that's probably going to go down in history is like, you know, a, a culture changing moment, maybe in, in the media. Um, but anyway, yeah, start wherever you want to start and tell me a little bit about what went into all first that. big piece I wrote. I mean, I've been working on the John Mack book at that time for, uh, quite a number of years, but in 2017, a colleague of mine, Leslie Kane, and I was off the Times by then, I was a freelancer, but she came to me with a story of a meeting in Washington, D.C. Um, uh, around a secret Pentagon unit called the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program that was tracking UFOs. And it was the first indication that the government uh, didn't give up the search for UFOs with, uh, with the Blue Book and the end of 69, 1969, that they were still involved. So we um, presented that story to the New York Times and got a very good story out of it. The head of the program, Lou Elizondo, um, had just resigned because he wasn't getting enough government support, uh, but that there was this uh, secret um, unit in the, in the government, in the Pentagon, investigating UFOs. And there'd been a lot of uh, incidents to investigate. There'd been... Uh, a series of incidents off the um, California coast with the aircraft carrier Nimitz um, yeah. in 2004, and it turned out that there were other uh, encounters similar of UFOs and Navy jets uh, off the East Coast in 2014 and 2015 with the Theodore Roosevelt. So these were a matter of interest to the government, and uh, nobody knew that. Uh, it wasn't public. So we broke that yeah. story in the Times, and then we interviewed a number of pilots who told of these encounters and things they saw. Um, and um, it, it, it made this, this it put the story, you know, squarely in the front of the news uh, because it was, here was a mainstream publication reporting this. It was all on the record. We had no unnamed sources and no, you know, uh, anonymous uh, tipsters. Or so it was all uh, names and uh, important people with their affiliations, Harry Reid, former Senate Majority Leader. And uh, so we told that story and it's had a lot of effect. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there's been subsequent articles that have come out since, right, that you've that you've worked on, again, with the same colleagues. Um, yes, yeah, we, we followed that up with a number of other pieces. Uh, uh, the last one reporting on uh, briefings to congressional committees about possible, possible recoveries of materials. Uh, yeah. from, from UFOs. It's not a lot of that information is classified. We could not get much. Uh, it's very closely held. Uh, we don't know very much about it, but it's uh, at least uh, congressional committees were told that research is going on into some of these materials for possible purposes of reverse engineering to see if we could duplicate the amazing aerodynamics of these uh, objects. Uh, again, you know, nobody knows what they are. Nobody knows. Nobody is saying that they are extraterrestrial, that they come from other planets, that they contain aliens, uh, because that's way beyond the information available. So in the Times, um, 
we've been very careful to limit the discussion to the fact that these are unidentified objects, just what the word says, or uh, unidentified aerial phenomena, as the new term says. Um, yeah. uh, we, the breakthrough, the important thing is that we now know, seem to know that they're physical and that they exist. Uh, they're not spiritual. They're not uh, imaginations, imaginary. They're not, um, you know, uh, archetypes, uh, spiritual things. They're actual physical things, but we don't know anything beyond that. Yeah. Beyond the fact that they just seem to be way beyond our capabilities, right. I guess. From that, you know, the question always comes up, well, could this be Chinese or Russian technology or even our own technology? And the answer we get from our sources is no. Uh, the Chinese and Russians don't have anything, uh, as far as we know, that is this far advanced that can appear and disappear mm. and reach hypersonic speeds and operate underwater as well as in the skies. So, yeah. um, and we wouldn't be risking our own technology in, in our own airspace. So uh, that seems to point to an extraterrestrial hypothesis, but no one is, is saying that. No, exactly. Not quite yet. I mean, even if it was all terrestrial and all man-made somehow, it would still be absolutely you know, life altering in the sense that this technology is so far ahead of what we've seen, at least from what I can tell and from what much cleverer people than me say. Well, certainly. Um, if, yeah. if another country on earth or we, the US uh, has this technology, uh, that would, as you say, be mind blowing uh, because we're doing things that nobody thought we could do in that case. But uh, it, it does seem very hard to imagine that a secret like that would have been kept until now. And that given all the you know, the close encounters with Navy craft that we would allow another, uh, mm. you know, an earthly adversary to do that to us or that we would be doing it to ourselves is pretty hard to imagine. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, it's easy to see some similarities between yourself and John in the sense that you've both had these amazing careers where you've traveled everywhere. You've been involved in some amazing things and you're in also in a subject that is not so widely and easily accepted or it's, it's becoming more so now, but I'm sure when you first kind of started dipping your toes into these waters, it was not quite so open, That's true. but anyway, yeah, I'd love to know a little bit about how the attitudes have changed from, from your point of view, a at the New York times, but if you don't want to go too into that specifically, also just in the kind of mainstream, it's, it's that word mainstream, oh, a lot but the mainstream more, media. Yeah, I mean, a lot more information out than when we started. Uh, it has become, a, you know, an acceptable area of reporting. Uh, I'm not saying we did that single-handedly, but I think we moved the, the needle. Uh, Definitely. And I think that uh, it's taken some of the ridicule factor off. Uh, it used to be, you know, career-ending for, for Navy a uh, pilot or, you know, sailor said they saw these things. Uh, it was a, it meant a quick trip to the psychiatrist. Um, now um, personnel are being encouraged to come forward with these stories. So that's a big breakthrough. So I think the climate yeah. has shifted. I, you know, I don't think we did it single-handedly, but I think we had a major part uh, to play in that. And I'm proud of that. Um, yeah. um, so, you know, we're waiting from, from, more developments we're watching we're talking to our sources all the time to see where it goes it's not clear uh this report is as as we do record this interview the report a uap report is supposed to come out in june i think yeah. the chance it'll be delayed because uh, there's so much to do 
and it may not be ready in time for six or six month deadline after the passage of the Defense Authorization Act last December. So it may not come out right in June. It may be delayed. It might, parts of it may be classified. Uh, only parts of it will be public. And a lot of questions about it. But uh, so I'm not making any assumptions that there'll be a big disclosure, you know, coming no. uh, within a matter of weeks from, from this interview now. But uh, we'll see. Do you have any expectations or things like that that you can that you feel comfortable to say now? I'm sure you've got your own private expectation, but anything that you would feel comfortable to I share? I don't feel comfortable speculating. I don't think, you know, we, we're talking to people all the time for what might be in the report. Uh, uh, people are yeah. very hungry for, for, for details, want to know how much does the government really know? Obviously, not everything has been put out. The, the three Navy videos that we put out in our reporting have been extremely popular. They show up every time, you know, anybody reports on the phenomenon. Um, mm. uh, and there's many more videos, we know that. There's longer parts of the videos that we did show that have not been released. A lot of it yeah. is, is held back. Some of it is classified, some not classified, but still not public. So, yeah. um, one of the most amazing ones recently, I think, that I saw was that object, or it seems like a, you know, I don't know if it's a craft or whatever, but this thing you see goes, is, is flying along above the water, goes into the water, yeah. comes back out, splits into two, I think. And then I can't even remember whether it just zips yeah. off or There's goes back of, under. But you know, videos that have been taken, some have been authenticated by the government, not all of them, uh, but then nobody knows what they are. Mm. Yeah. Do we, I mean, I expect that, that water is going to feature in this report because there's been a lot of like, uh, at least rumor and a lot of smoke around that concept that like we said earlier. So, uh, yeah, one of the pilots we interviewed saw a disturbance in the water. So clearly there's some, something to do with, you know, underwater capabilities, but uh, more than that, we don't know. Yeah, yeah. That's there's a lot going on <laughs> that needs to be figured out. Um, anyway, let me ask you one last thing because I am conscious of the time. Um, so one thing I like to ask all my guests is just if you could pass on a message to anybody that's listening and or watching, um, what would you say? Listen, keep an open mind. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, Charles Fort, the great anomalist, uh, great hero of mine, said, accept only temporarily. Uh, that was his, uh, his phrase. So um, he also said he compared this field to... Uh, looking for a needle no one ever lost in a haystack that never was. So, uh, <laughs> uh, keep, you know, keep your skepticism, keep your healthy, you know, uh, um, disbelief, but uh, be open. Be open to what people are bringing forth. Um, and, you know, being a skeptic doesn't mean closing your eyes and ears to everything that doesn't seem possible. Of course it's not possible. Everybody agrees it doesn't seem possible. And yet... Um, these accounts uh, are hard to uh, explain away. So just keep an open mind and see what, what comes. That's all. Perfect. Love it. Thanks so much, Ralph. I really appreciate this. And, and again, thanks for, for writing about John Mack and, and bringing him to everyone's attention. Okay. Real pleasure. Thank you. All the best. Thanks, Ralph. Thank you. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Ralph Blumenthal. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Please give us and Ralph a follow on social media. If you'd like to know more about the wonderful John Mack, please follow the links in the description and get the book. I really recommend it. Thank you, Ralph, for giving me your time and for introducing me to the amazing John Mack. Be nice, be happy, be cool.